Good morning, church. I'll be reading from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Uh, Welcome to anger management class. Um, if, if you don't think you have a problem with anger, you will after I get done with you. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about anger, dealing with the anger inside of us. And uh, so we've been uh, working through this series through 1 John, and the title of this series has been Know That You Know God, because to know that you know God is, is heaven on earth. There's nothing like it. I mean, you can have a concept of that, but when that becomes a reality to you, there's nothing quite like that. And um, we've come to the place in this little letter by John uh, of the characteristics of fellowship, characteristics of intimacy with God. What does that look like? If I truly have an intimate relationship with God, what does that look like? And two weeks ago, we talked about purity of life, and then last week in practice of righteousness, And then this weekend, we're going to talk about love in deed and truth. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 John chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 24. They were the verses that were just read. And um, also grab your sermon notes out. You can see part of the intro here. The Bible is very clear that everyone is, is in one of only two families. Everyone on this planet is in one of two families. You are either in the family of the devil or the family of God. Now, John's going to make this clear to us in our text, but Jesus made this very clear. Remember when he was interacting with the Pharisees back in, uh, really in John chapter 8? And uh, they thought that they had God and they knew God and, and all of this talk about they were Abraham's children. And he said basically to them, no, you, your mama shacked up with the devil and you're the offspring of that. I mean, he was, he was pretty hardcore. And uh, if you really knew me and if you loved me, you would listen to me and you wouldn't try to murder me. You wouldn't try to kill me. And so our culture says this, I've heard this a lot, that we are all God's children. How many have ever heard that before? We're all God's children. Well, actually, we are born into this world as children of of the devil. 
but we must be born again to be children of God. Now, in our pluralistic world, that is not a very politically, that is not very politically correct at all. What I just said, the world cannot stand that. What happens when I make statements like that? It's either riot or revival. It's either riot or revival in people's lives. That's the dividing line in Christianity. So it's not very politically correct, but it is very biblically true, and the characteristics of each family are very distinct. So as we've been working through this series, uh, John has given us three characteristics of those that are truly children of God, and that is that they, one, love God's Son, that's the theological test, and then the second one is love God's Word, that's the moral test, and then the third one is love God's people, that's the social test, that's what we're looking at here this morning. And we've already looked at this before, but he just kind of weaves these three throughout this book. And so... um, This love for God's people is more than just words, it is love in deed and truth, as verse 16 of our text says. So talk is cheap, actions speak louder than words, that's what John is getting at. And so what is the basis of this love that we should have for one another? What should motivate this love that we should have for one another? Well, it goes back to the first of the chapter. If you go to the very first verse of the chapter, One of my favorite verses, 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. It's amazing. And when that hits you, when you begin to live in the reality of his love, you're gonna love him in return. You're gonna love others. It just becomes a natural overflow of your life. So how do you become a child of God? Well, John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, to all who receive him, that is Jesus, and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So receive him, believe in him. If you haven't done that yet, do that today. Do that today. That's important. Really, really important for not just this life, but the life to come. So you can see there, here's your first fill in the blank. Foundational truth of this text is love one another. Love one another. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That sounds very, uh, very similar to 1 John 2, 7 through 11 when we studied that portion of 1 John. But, but he now is taking the topic a little deeper And so, uh, and he's going to give us, really, we've got the the distinction between um, characteristics of children of the devil and characteristics of children of God. And so let's start with characteristics of of children of the devil, what love isn't. And you'll notice the progression here. It starts with indifference, hatred, and then murder. So let's take indifference, first of all, verses 16 and 17 of our text, by this we know love. How do we know what love is? How do we define love? Because I hear a lot of people say, we just need to love one another. And I always say, what does that mean? What does it mean to love one another? Define that for us. Well, the Bible defines that for us. And he says, by this we know love. Check this out. This is good. That he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. The God of the galaxies came to earth and reconciled us to the Father by giving his life, dying in our place for our sins. And therefore, all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. He gave his life for us. Think about that for a few days. You should be just reveling in the reality of it. Jesus, thank you. You gave your life for me. And notice what he says. He says, and so therefore we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, now he's going to talk a little bit about an indifferent heart. But if anyone has the world's goods, so you have the resources, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. So you have the resources. You see someone maybe in your small group or in this church, or you see a need somewhere in this church and you close your heart to that so you're you say I don't want to think about it I don't want to hear it again I don't want to even be stirred emotionally by that need I'm just going to 
distance myself. I'm just going to be indifferent towards it. And he says, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? He's just saying, the love of God does not live in you. Now, I think what he's talking about here is this is a person who tends to be more of a spectator rather than a participant in the things of God and using what God has given, given them to, to minister to others and to help others to see, see God and experience God more clearly. A great example of this indifference is also found in Matthew 15, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus to the Pharisees, he, was, he said this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So this is a person that just, they're indifferent about church. Yeah, we need to go to church. Okay, if we have to. We come here, we check the box, we just go through the motions, we, we mouth songs, we just, we sing the songs, but it has no impact on our life. We don't realize that it's an encounter with the living God as we worship him in song and in the study of scripture. It's an opportunity to encounter him, but that indifference would just say, nah, whatever. I did that. Check. What are we going to do next? When is this going to be over? That's indifference. It's a characteristic of a child of, of the devil. And indifference is dominated by selfishness, unconcerned for others, shutting your heart to those who are in need, and only giving when it benefits you. So people that have indifference can still be very, very generous, but they're only doing it out of motives because it benefits them. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 5 through 7. He says, talking about the Pharisees, which were very highly esteemed religious leaders of his day, he says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. To be seen by others. Now, how many have ever seen the movie Christmas Vacation? Christmas vacation, okay. Not very many of you. Okay, okay, yeah, you're indifferent, aren't you? <laughs> okay, it's okay to be indifferent about that, okay. But not about what I'm gonna tell you right here, okay. And so, uh, it's as the holidays approach, Clark Griswold, Chevy Chase, works hard to have a perfect family Christmas. Yeah. And however things go awry quickly when his hick, obnoxious cousin Eddie, Randy Quaid, and his family show up unplanned and start living in their camper on the Griswold property. And Clark, Clark shows indifference and then even disdain for his cousin Eddie, who is, is a train wreck. And uh, this movie is funny and relatable because most of us have a cousin Eddie in our families. People hard to love. And uh, in fact, the church of Jesus Christ is filled with cousin Eddies. In fact, as I heard one person say, being a Christian often feels like being in a family with a bunch of cousin Eddies, people who are hard to love. And, and the irony of this is that we don't realize that we are one of those cousin Eddies ourselves, all of us. And so it's easy to love people who love us, but this love that, that, that the Bible's talking about, he laid down his life for us so we should lay down our life for one another, this love sacrifices for the unlovely, the undeserving and ungrateful, the cousin Eddie's, that you're not indifferent towards them. The next one is, so you go from indifference to hatred, verse 13, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus said this in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So hatred is a characteristic of children of Satan. Now, listen to what Jesus says about hatred, just to see if you, you might have a hint of it in your own heart, and... Uh, Matthew 20, Matthew 5, this is Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 through 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, now he's going to give us really what does that mean, not murder, because a lot of times I've heard people say, well, at least I didn't kill him. I didn't murder anybody lately. And he goes, well, that's not enough. 
That's not where the line is drawn. It, it's drawn in your heart. And so he goes, goes on and says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So the, the bad kind of anger. There's a good kind of anger. There's a bad kind of anger. So the bad kind of anger is liable for judgment. And then he, it's almost like he's trying to, he's really emphasizing this. He's helping us to understand this. Okay, anger. And then he goes on and says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So the, the word anger here, the Greek word is argizo. It, it is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. Uh, insults, the Greek word is raka, you are nothing, empty, worthless. In fact, New American Standard puts it this way, you good for nothing. It's those kind of words, insults to others. And then he gives us kind of an insulting word. He says, you fool. The, the Greek word is moros. We get our word moron from that. Isn't that interesting? So basically he's just saying, you moron, you idiot, you jackass. And uh, so in God's eyes, anger, an attitude of contempt, disdain, condescension, and belittling is equivalent to murder. It's equivalent to murder. That's where the line is drawn. It's drawn in our heart. Now, doesn't God get angry with people? Yeah, absolutely. The Bible's very clear about that. Romans 1.18 says that he pours his wrath out upon people. Doesn't Jesus get angry with the money changers in the temple? Yeah, John 2. Doesn't Jesus call the Pharisees fools? Yes, in Matthew 23. But there is a difference between compassion-motivated anger and contempt-motivated anger. So when you look at your anger, is my anger compassion-motivated because that person is destroying them or that person is destroying someone else, and I'm going to be angry about that. That would be normal. That's love, actually expressed through anger. That's compassion-motivated anger. But then there's also the contempt-motivated anger. And, and as Jesus described here, uh, it tells us in Ephesians 4.26, be angry, but don't sin. So be angry, compassion-motivated anger, but don't sin. Don't have contempt-motivated anger. And... Um, We'll talk a little bit more about that verse a little bit later. But, but I thought it would be good for us to kind of explore this idea. What is the root of anger anyway? I, as I was thinking about this in my own life, what is the etiology of anger? And you guys know this, that emotions, anger is included obviously with our emotions, but emotions reveal our values and our evaluations of life. So what you get excited about is something that you really value. And what you're sad about is when something that's really important to you is, is uh, threatened, lost, or blocked in some way. So you, you look at your emotions, your emotional response to life in general, it's telling you what not only you value, but it's telling you your evaluation, how, how you're, what you're saying to yourself about those people, things, and circumstances. And... Uh, and so anger is a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. So it's energy aroused, and it does two things, basically, to defend something good and destroy something bad. So when, you're, when your anger is aroused, you're trying to destroy, you're trying to defend something good, and you're trying to destroy something that is bad. See, what makes you angry is not what happens to you, but what you tell yourself about what has happened to you. It's internal, it's not external. We tend to blame our people, things, and circumstances for our anger. That person made me angry, that makes me angry. No, it's what you're saying to yourself about those circumstances that is making you angry. And, um, and that's important. And there's two unhealthy ways of dealing with anger. There's blowing up and clamming up. Blowing up is open aggression. It's the gunslinger kind of uh, approach. The gunslingers, you don't have to know what they're thinking. They will tell you what they're thinking, okay? I tend to be a gunslinger. Gunslingers come in with guns blazing and wait to see who's standing after the dust is settled. And so there are gunslingers. I'm a gunslinger. 
And so uh, that's open aggression, that's blowing up, that's my tendency. And what's interesting, our modern culture says express your anger. It's okay, express your anger. Now the second one is clamming up, clamming up. So this is where my wife fits in right here, okay? And this is passive aggression. This is this Eskimo treatment. I'm just going to freeze him out. And I'm going to be cold and indifferent towards him. And I hope he doesn't bug me anymore. He goes away and dies. (laughs) That's the Eskimo treatment. Eskimo. And so... uh, And that's typically, a lot of people do that because the traditional culture, so modern culture says express your anger, traditional culture says repress your anger. And uh, let let me do a quick survey here. How many would fit into the category of blowing up? You tend to be more of a gunslinger. Gunslingers, gunslingers? I just need to know who I need to avoid. Okay, thank you for your honesty. Now anybody here sitting next to a gunslinger and they didn't raise their hand? You need to raise their hand for them, okay? So uh, don't let them get away with that. And then how many would say they do more of the clamming up, passive aggression, more of the Eskimo? You hurt me, I'm just gonna ignore you. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, that's why you guys have been ignoring me lately. Okay, now I know. So, So modern culture says express your anger. Traditional culture says repress your anger. The Bible says don't express or repress, but reorder your anger according to God's word. Go back to God's word and reorder your anger so that you have compassion rather than contempt-motivated anger. And so whenever you get angry, ask yourself, what is the big thing that's so important to me that I am defending Oftentimes we don't do that. We don't go deep enough into our anger. And what is so important to me that I'm willing to clobber everyone around me to get it rather than to lose it? And here's what you will find more times than you would like to admit. You are defending your ego and or an idol. So this happens to me more than I I, I would like to admit. And uh, traffic... Long lines, delays, dumb drivers, incompetent baristas <laughs> tend to push my impatience button. And actually, they don't. It's me and what I'm saying to myself about what's being done, what's going on there. And uh, friends, let me give you an example of that. I'm not proud of it, but uh, this has happened to me. I was coming out of the parking lot at the nightclub, 17th Avenue Bell Road, where we spent about six years uh, there as a church, and just finished up with our third weekend service. I'm exhausted and in a hurry to get home. I have this, as I'm leaving the parking lot, a lot of traffic would come through that parking lot, a lot of businesses around there, and I have an altercation in the church parking lot with some guy in a pickup truck who thinks I cut him off in the parking lot. And um, so he flips me off. And I get very angry. And, um, and I just kind of give him these kind of hand gestures like, dude, don't get in my face. This is the Christian way of flipping someone off, okay? <laughs> there is no Christian way, okay? You guys know that. I was just like, dude, I'm tired, I'm in a hurry. Don't you see I'm trying to get home so that I can work on my next message on how to love one another? I mean, that was really the essence of it because when I thought back on it later, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, the irony of that. I'm one messed up human being. Please, Jesus, I need you. And so, and and the guy, guy tries to chase me down with a little road rage, but I outrun him. I outran him because I'm an aggressive driver. And my wife doesn't like that. And so stop and quickly analyze what is the big and very important thing that I'm defending. So oftentimes in the heat of the moment, you can't do that. You need to start doing that before. And, and, but afterwards, you can look back on it 
and uh, begin to ask yourself, what am I trying to defend? Anger is defending something you love and destroying something you hate. So I'm defending my ego. He flipped me off. And my idol, don't delay me. Don't waste my time. You're in my way. And uh, so that impatience is rooted in, in anger. It's, it's hatefulness is what it is. Because the whole life, all of this whole world revolves around me, so don't get in my way. I've got really important things to do. And so uh, let's, let's say that you, let's, let me give you another example. Let's say you run into a restaurant and have only 20 minutes to eat or you'll be late to your next meeting. The waitress is very slow and incompetent and you are getting frustrated and you're getting very angry. So you stop, you analyze, what is this very big and important thing that I'm defending? Well, when I really think about it, I'm de- I'm, I didn't plan enough time in the day to eat and I don't want to look foolish to everybody in the meeting by being late. So what are you defending? You're defending your ego. You're defending you. And the fact is, you're afraid of how you're going to look. And so, what am I just trying to destroy? The waitress with my impatience and anger. So, Ephesians 4.29 is a verse that we had our family memorize years ago because we needed help with some of this. It says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs so that it might benefit those that hear. You actually benefit those that hear by your conversation, by the things that you say. So he's really just saying no profanity, no insults, no name calling, and the list goes on. Don't do that. That's That's a window into your heart. Let God fix your heart so that you don't do that. So it leads to murder. So indifference, hatred, murder, characteristics of children of the devil. Verse 12, he says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one. So he's right there, he's he's defining for us. This is, he's a child of the devil, of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So there's a lot of competition, a lot of pride, A lot of comparisons going on. Now, let's go to the story that he's referring to. And I want to read through just a section of that story. So I think it's really helpful for us as we process our own anger. There's some things here that are uh, really powerful for us to learn. Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He had no regard. So so, so why is that? Well, it's a little bit of speculation, but for the most part, Cain was doing, he was almost like he was saying, I'm gonna worship you however I wanna worship you. I'm gonna define you how I wanna define you. Rather than Abel was, no, no, he's already established for us how he wants us to come to him. So it'd be that kind of person that's going through the motions, checking the church box. I decide how I'm going to worship God or whether I'm going to worship God. And it was, it was more of that general attitude down deep inside of him. For Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, like a little kid throwing a temper tantrum. And his face fell. What does it mean that your face falls? I know that that naturally happens when you're getting old like me, but but it actually means this, where your, your head goes down. It's depression. So if you don't resolve the anger inside of you, if you tend to, I'm not gonna blow up, but then you clam up, and then over time it begins to build up, and anger turned inward becomes depression. So he's depressed, he's not just angry, but he's, he's depressed. Now notice this, this is so tender, this is beautiful. God approaches Cain as he did his mom and dad in the garden after they had sinned. Remember when he came back into the garden in the cool of the day? He said to Adam and Eve, he didn't come down there to get onto them because they had sinned, but he said, where are you? He's wanting them to, to, to confess their sin. 
And he began to, he backed that up with another question. He was trying to get them to the, he was a great counselor trying to get to the deep issues of our life. And so he does that here uh, with Cain. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Why are you depressed? That's a good question. Why am I so angry? Why am I so bitter? That would be a question that we need to ask ourselves. And then why am I so depressed? If I realized what I had in Jesus, that would go away. But evidently, I'm not living in the reality of that. And that's what he's trying to do here. And so he goes on, verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Do what I've told you to do. Obey me. And, uh, and if you do not do well, notice this, really a great analogy of sin. Sin is crouching at the door. So the picture there is like a lion, kind of hiding, and sin is coming after you. Your anger, your depression is going to get the best of you, is what he's saying. In fact, he goes on and actually says, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So we need to take responsibility for our anger and our depression and the things that are happening to us and how we're responding to those things. That's what he's saying. Otherwise, it will rule you. You need to rule it. Really great insight. And Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. And that's indifference. He's showing an attitude of indifference. And... Um, Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we need to speak the truth in love. That's our interaction with one another. And then he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So what is he saying? Man, you need to be dealing with anger every day. You need to be working through that. Not only the sins that you've committed, but also the sins that have been committed against you by the, the people around you. Process that. That's why we have in the Sermon on the Mount. Once again, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And, uh, and that's in essence what we're doing. We're, we're, we're taking out the trash every day, every day, because otherwise it will stockpile in our life and it will take us out. It will destroy us. Because he goes on, he says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You're opening the door to the devil. You're giving him a foothold into your life. And so... Those are the characteristics of children of the devil. Let's look at the characteristics of children of God, what love is. And here's the first one. Meets needs sacrificially, not indifferent. Meets needs sacrificially, not indifferent. Verses 16 and 17 once again. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, so you got the resources, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So, so love is the overflow of joy in God that gladly meets the needs of others. And this is a sacrifice of our time, our talents, and our money to benefit those around us so that they can come to faith in Christ and grow in their relationship with Christ. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So evidently they were teaching that. Love, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies? Pray for those who give you a bad time to persecute you? Well, that's, that's supernatural. That's supernatural. You need the help of God to do that. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He's talking about common grace there. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's calling them to really holiness, living a holy life. And, um, and in fact, in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, in the final judgment, God will separate the sheep from the goats. So what are the things that distinguish the sheep and, uh, apart from the goats? Well, he, he says it right here. To the sheep, God will say in verse 35 of Matthew 25, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to the goats, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Uh, Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. As you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And then he concludes this section by saying, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So, I mean, there are limits to what, what you can do to help others, but, but we need to push those limits. And uh, not to the point of being broke in time, talents, and money. Then you can't help anybody. If you just gave all your money away. So listen to me. We can't meet all the needs in the valley. But there's a few things that we can do. You can't meet all the needs that are around you every day. But you can meet a few of those needs. And that's what he's talking about here. You need to make a distinction to what God has called you to do. And to not be a spectator with indifference, but be a participant out of the love of God for you as you respond and you want to help as many as you can know Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. And there's no shortage of opportunities for you to sacrificially love one another here at Desert Breeze. You've seen the list. I was, I was going through the list. I asked Amy, our hospitality uh, coordinator, uh, to give me a list of all the various needs. And this is what we give to the Game of Life folks. But, uh, but basically, it's hospitality, greeters, ushers, info table, communion. Those are ways of loving one another. Outreach and missions, life groups, support groups, security, children's ministry, youth ministry, music ministry, DB Cafe, all the prophets go to missions. Those are all volunteers. Women's ministry, men's ministry, and then of course you're, you're giving money to our general fund and uh, the Dare You to Move campaign as we continue to build this facility out. But let me just say this, you guys are doing really an amazing job in all of that. You guys are doing really a great job. And it's because I know, I know that you know he laid down his life for you. Therefore, you're willing to lay down your life and even sacrifice for others to know him and to know what you have. Here's the next one. So meets needs sacrificially, not indifferent. Shows affection, not hatred. Shows affection, not hatred. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So if you don't love someone, he's just saying, you abide in death. But if you abide in love, you're gonna love others. Ephesians 4, 31 through 32 are some verses I've been meditating on lately. They've just been really, really, really good for me. Listen to what he says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put that away from you, all of that. And then he goes on. You got to read the next verse. It's, it's beautiful. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. He forgave you. If you're a man and a woman has wronged you, and you haven't totally forgiven that woman, you're going to be quicker to be angry at other women. You have a sunburn that hasn't been healed up yet. And you're going to be quicker to take offense from women more than men. 
And that works in the opposite with women towards men. If you're a member of a particular race or class and you were wronged by a person in another race or class and you haven't totally forgiven, see, this is where racism comes in, classism. Someone hurts you in another class or race and you don't forgive them, you don't work through that, you got that anger inside of you, sin is crouching at your door ready to take you out, that creates an anger that's under the surface that makes you more prone to take offense and get angry at people of that race or class. So meet needs sacrificially and don't be indifferent, show affection, not hatred, and then brings life, not death, brings life, not death. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Did you hear what he said? You slow down enough and you kind of walk through the text, you go, oh my goodness, that's hard hitting. If I hate someone, I'm a murderer? Yes. That's what he's saying. He's, he's basically echoing the words of Jesus. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I was immediately thought, as I was thinking about bringing life rather than death, it tells us in Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So what you say how you react to people, how you respond to people can either bring life or death. Even if you're in a volatile situation, you have responsibility to, to bring life, not death. And that's what he's, he's saying. Verse 18, little children, let us not love in words or talk, but indeed in truth. Where's the best definition of love. I mean, that defined love for us, but there's a, there's a place in Scripture that gives us a whole chapter on love. Anybody know where that is? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, really define for us love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And we're able to offer that kind of love to others because that's the kind of love that God loves us with. And so as you, as you regularly bask in the reality of his love, oh my goodness, there's nothing quite like it. It's naturally gonna overflow your life to wanna love him and then love those around you. So... What does all of that, uh, how does it, what does that do to our lives? What loving one another gives us? Let me, let's zip through these pretty quickly here. I want to spend a lot of time on it, but I, I want to end with a story here. And so assurance before God, it gives us assurance before God. When we are loving one another, it gives us assurance before God that our lives have really been touched by his love. And, and that's important because after talking about the, this high standard of, of self-sacrificial love, our hearts or consciences may accuse us uh, of not being as loving as we should be. Listen to what he says in verses 19 through 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And so uh, what is our standing with God based on? So that's, what he sees. that's why God is greater than our heart. Yeah, I'm, I'm not coming close to that. I'm, I, I really want to. I love God, and, I, and yet I still struggle. So what is my standing before God as a, as a struggler? My standing for God is unshakable, unbreakable, because it's not based on my performance, but on the performance of Jesus once and for all. I stand before God perfectly righteous. But practically, I still struggle with that, and so what do I do? When I, when I fail, I confess and repent and run back into his arms. And as he continues to bring healing to my heart. And so that's what brings assurance before God as we continue to love him and love others. Answered prayer, and whoever 
And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And then abiding in God is the the last one. This just shows us by loving one another, we are abiding in him, we're dwelling in him. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God. And God is God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he gave us. So what does it mean to abide? It means that... uh, you just, you're basking in the reality of his love for you every day. You're, you're practicing his presence. You're enjoying all that he offers us through the cross. Now, let me end with a story here, kind of wrap all this up to help us, uh, what, how this applies and a little bit more. And uh, let me just uh, say this, that real changes in your life don't, don't happen when you get married. There are some changes that happen, but not near as much as when you start having children. If you're married, I heard someone say this, if you're married but you haven't had children, it's really just like being on a long date. And your life doesn't really go into the toilet until you have children. (laughs) Seriously. And even if you're a bad parent or a mediocre parent, it doesn't matter. Parenting is all about Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. That's parenting. And uh, you don't do three-fourths of the things you used to do, used to be able to do before the kids. Have you noticed that? (laughs) Of course you have. Everything revolves around the kids. And so you make all of these sacrifices And at some point, the kid becomes a teenager. Oh, boy. And you cross the kid's will. And you just ask them not to do something everyone else in the whole world knows is self-destructive and stupid. And the child turns on you and says something like this. You don't love me. You hate me. I hate you. You've ruined my life. I hate you. I hate you. You've never done anything for me. Really? There is nothing more painful than to have the one person you have sacrificed and sacrificed for to look you in the eye and say those kind of things to you. Nothing more hurtful. That goes right into your heart. You know why? It's because that is... That is the most unjustified, disproportionate, disordered rage possible, and it hurts like crazy. Because it hurts so deeply, this is a test for parents. Only three things you can do. By the way, this applies to all of our relationships. If you're in a volatile relationship, what I'm saying here applies to that also, and your response to those people that are angry towards you, hostile, they hate you and they can be living in our very home, in our own home. They can be neighbors, they can be friends to us, close to us. And so there's only three things you can do. The first one is you can suppress your anger and withdraw and stay away because it just hurts too much. You give your child up to their self-destructive impulses and what has happened, you have lost your child. You will lose your child. Second response would be that you express your anger and go in with guns blazing. They rage at you, you rage at them. They call you something, you call them something. They hate you, you hate them. Because because of the fact that you have had many years of practice at verbal abuse, you'll probably win. But in reality, you will lose because evil is winning. And you're becoming, over time, if you respond in one of those two ways, over time you're becoming hard, cold, and indifferent because you're not dealing with the anger inside of you and sin is crouching at your door to take you out. Here's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing to do. It's the very Christian thing to do. And it's the only way to save your child. The third response is you can do a surgical strike and not target the person, but the problem. You must come close, insist on truth, 
and absorb their anger towards you without, without paying back. I know you're angry. I know you're upset, but this is just what we're going to do. This is how it's going to be. See, it's the only chance you have of saving your child or saving the relationship with the person. Now, why would you do that? Well, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's why we do it, because he did that for us. Do you realize what God has done for you? Do you realize what he's done for you? Oh my goodness, the God of the galaxies came from heaven to earth to get close to us, to speak truth to us. And what did he do? He absorbed not only our anger, but the very wrath of God that was meant for us was placed upon him on the cross to set us free Absolutely amazing. And when God became human and came close, spoke truth and absorbed our anger, we mocked him, we beat him, we spit on him and killed him. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. You know what the cup is? If you're familiar with this, the, the theology here, the, the, cup, the cup is the wrath of God. Everywhere in the Old Testament, the, the cup is the cup of God's anger, our deserved anger. And on the cross, Jesus not only took the anger we deserve for sin, but he spoke the gentlest words to all of us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. So what, what did he teach us there? Well, we teach us what is uh, said in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you don't get anything else, that's it. That's what we talked about this morning. Don't become like the evil that is being done to you, but overcome evil with good, and that's supernatural. And you need God's help to do that. Next weekend, testing the spirits. That's what we're gonna talk about. Woohoo! that ought to be interesting. First John chapter four, verses one through six. If you are new here, uh, my wife and I will be up, at, up here at, uh, at the end of the service, and if you're new, uh, we would love to meet you. And if you need prayer for any particular reason, we would love to pray with you also. Uh, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, by, by this we know love that your son laid down his life for us, and as we now receive and believe in him, May we lay down our lives for one another. May we take on the character of those who are, are your children. And may we meet needs sacrificially and not be indifferent, show affection, not hatred, and bring life and, and not death in all of our relationships. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys.